Hello and welcome to another episode of JHE Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. As always, I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries, and I'm glad you joined in today. Be sure to follow this podcast and you'll receive notifications every time we have a new podcast. Well, as you know, we are studying the book of Luke and we are unpacking the eighth chapter of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the eighth chapter and we're going to pick up where we left off with verse 13. Let's get into it. Now, last time, as you remember, we ended by seeing women ministering to Jesus and we had Jesus share with us the parable of the sower. Now, we're going to take a look more into the explanation of Jesus about the parable of the sower. We were in the middle of the types of soils that seed is sown onto. The first one we talked about was the wayward soil from which the birds of the air devour and the men trample on. So now let's continue with the second type of soil in our discussion, beginning with verse 13. And I'll look at verses 13 and 14 like we did last time. In the next two types of soils, there's an initial response, though it is superficial. For some, in time of testing, they fall away because they can't endure adversity. We have the rock hearers, the soil that the seed falls on, the rocky soil. They heard the word too, but they did not let the word break them. They remained unrepentant, not encouragement, which is depicted as the moisture, was given to the seed. So it withered away and it died. Now, perhaps they made a bright profession of faith at first, but there was no reality. There seemed to be life, but there was no root beneath the surface, a surface for it to grow. So when trouble came, they abandoned their Christian faith. Now we have the third soil, and that has to do not with adversity, but with distractions of this world. These distractions prohibit a person's faith from maturing. That this matter of being fruitful is not simply a matter of the quality of one's Christian life, but whether one has life at all is suggested by Jesus' parallel teaching on wealth that we find in the book of Matthew chapter 6. The unresponsive people described in this part of the parable apparently lacked the necessary essentials to true saving faith. And the thorny ground hearers seemed to get along nicely for a while, but they proved that they were not genuine believers by their failure to go on steadfastly. The cares, riches, and pleasures of life took control, and the word was stifled and smothered. So in verse 15, Luke stresses the character of the individual by describing that person as noble and good. The word heart means the spiritual, the intellectual, and and the volitional center of a person's being. It's the whole person. And this person is marked by singleness of purpose and is the kind of person who does not persevere until an abundant crop is produced. And the good ground represented 
the true believers whose hearts were noble and good. They not only received the word, but allowed it to mold their lives. They were teachable. They were obedient, developing a true Christian character and producing fruit for God. Now, Darby summarized this as, If on hearing I possess that which I hear, not merely have joy in receiving it, but possess it as my own, then it becomes a part of the substance of my soul, and I shall get more. For when the truth has become a substance in my soul, there is a capacity for receiving more. Now that concludes the section of Jesus' parable on the sower. Now we're going to move into another section here in Luke with verse 16. The responsibility of those who hear the parable of the Lamb. So let's go to our scripture and let's start with verse 16, the parable of the revealed light. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even when he seems to have, will be taken from him. <clears throat> now let's stop there and let's go back up to verse 16. What is genuine can and will be tested for its authenticity. Here there is a continuous flow of thought. The Savior is still emphasizing the importance of what his disciples do with his teachings. He likens himself to a man who has lit a lamp not to be put under a vessel or under a bed, but on a lampstand for all to see the light. And in teaching the disciples the principles of the kingdom of God, he was lighting a lamp. And what should they do with it? Well, first of all, they should not cover it with a vessel. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, and also the book of Mark chapter 4, and of course in Luke here in chapter 11 that we will be getting into, the vessel is spoken of as a bushel. Now, this, of course, is a unit of measure used in the world of commerce. So hiding the lamp under a bushel could speak of allowing one's testimony to be obscured or crowded out in the rush of the business life. It would be better to put the lamp on top of the bushel, that is, practice Christianity in the marketplace, and use one's business as a pulpit for spreading the gospel. Now, secondly, the disciples should not hide the lamp under a bed. The bed speaks of rest, comfort, sloth or laziness, and indulgence. How these can hinder the light from shining. The disciples should put the lamp on a stand. In other words, he should live and preach the truth so that all can see it. Now, verse 17, this seems to suggest that if we allow the message to be confined because of business or laziness, our neglect and failure will be exposed. Hiding of the truth will be revealed, and keeping it a secret will come to light. If what is hidden is evil, this saying affirms that God's judgment on those referred to in verse 10 and in verses 12 to 15 will be just. And furthermore, God's truth, now partially hidden from those who reject it, will one day be publicly vindicated. 
the absurdity of lighting a lamp only to hide it reinforces the point. And finally, in verse 18, those who accept the message of the kingdom will be given knowledge of the secret, but those who reject it will lose even the opportunity of hearing more teachings. Therefore, we should be careful how we hear. If we are faithful in sharing the truth with others, then God will reveal new and deeper truths to us. If, on the other hand, we do not have this spirit of evangelistic zeal, God will deprive us of the truth we think we possess. What we don't use, we lose. The disciples listened, and with a mind eager to understand and ready to believe and obey, the rest heard with either listlessness or curiosity or resolute opposition. To the former, more knowledge would be granted, uh, granted, and the latter would be deprived of what knowledge they seem to have. For we must share if we would keep that good thing from above. Ceasing to give, we cease to have, and such is the law of love. Now we're going to move into a new section again, where we talk about Jesus' true family. So let's turn back to our scripture once again. The verse 19, Jesus' mother and brothers come to him. And verse 19 begins, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered and he said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now Luke turns at this point to the story of Jesus and his relationship to his family. At this point in his discourse, Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were waiting to see him, and because of the crowd, they could not get near him. The answer of the Lord was that real relationship with him does not depend on natural ties but on obedience to the word of God. He recognizes as members of his family all who tremble at the word, who receive it with weakness, and who obey it implicitly. No crowd can prevent his spiritual family from having audience with him. Now, Jesus does not, of course, dishonor his family, but he honors those who obey God. And most Christians would probably say that We come closer to Jesus through prayer and reading the Bible, but with searching practicality, Jesus says that the way close to him, even as his own family, is through being receptive to hearing God's word and then doing it. Hours of praying and reading the Bible will not bring disobedient Christians as close to the Lord as doing his truth brings even the simplest believer. Jesus' reply teaches that spiritual ties are stronger than natural ties and implies that his mother was no closer to him than anyone else who does the will of God. And once again, we come to a new section of Luke here, calming the storm. The Son of Man stills the storm. Now Luke continues illustrating the powerful, authoritative word of Jesus. In this section, 
Jesus exercises his power against natural forces, against demons, illnesses, and even death. Then he delegates his power to his disciples. Now, this story itself is noteworthy for its vividness and its portrayal of the Lord Jesus in complete control of himself and also of his environment. The climax comes, the climax comes not with the miracle itself, but with the question of the disciples concerning the identity of the master. It is a nature miracle, marking the first time in Luke that Jesus applied his power to a non-living object. And Jesus is affirming his sovereignty over storm and sea, as God did in the Exodus. So let's turn to verse 22. The wind and wave obeyed Jesus. And now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Now verses 22 to 23 that I want to look at together. In the remainder of this chapter, Jesus is seen exercising his lordship over the elements. All these obey his word. The only one that refuses is man. And violent storms do rise quickly on the Sea of Galilee, making navigation perilous. Yet perhaps this particular storm was of satanic origin. It might have been an attempt to destroy the Savior of the world. Jesus' words, let us go over to the other side of the lake, should have assured the disciples that they would indeed complete their trip across the water. Luke mentions the fury of the wind three times. Jesus was asleep when the storm broke. The fact that he slept attests his true humanity. The storm went to sleep when Jesus spoke. This fact attests his absolute deity. And Luke mentions earlier in the narrative, then do Matthew, Mark, which the story occurs in those two Gospels, that Jesus was asleep. This placement heightens the contrast between the turmoil of the storm and Jesus's peaceful rest. Now, in verses 24 to 25, the fear and unbelief of the disciples are in contrast, not only to the calm of their master, but also to the endurance they themselves should have had in the time of test. The double master-master expresses both respect and terror. The fear of being lost at sea is a common fear for sailors and typical of helplessness in the immensity of life. The disciples awoke the Savior, expressing anguished fears for their own safety. And with perfect poise, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, and immediately all was calm. What he did to the Sea of Galilee, 
he can do to the troubled, storm-tossed disciple today. And he asked the disciples, where is your faith? The disciples should not have worried. They did not need to awaken him. Because no water can swallow the ship, where lies the master of the ocean and earth and the skies? To be with Christ in the boat is to be absolutely safe and secure. The disciples did not fully appreciate the extent of the power of their master. Their understanding of him was defective, if you will. They marveled that the elements obeyed Jesus. They were no different from us. In the storms of life, we often despair. Then when the Lord comes to our aid, we are astonished at the display of his power, and we wonder that we did not trust him more fully. The question of the disciples, who is this, serves to show not only their amazement, but also the slowness of their apprehension of the master's true identity. And this question not only marks the climax of this story, but is a key question in Luke. And with that, I'm going to leave us for today. Next time, we'll get into the demon-possessed man. So until next time, God bless you, and keep living Christian strong.